If you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 for this evening, looking at a very well-known parable of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the parable of the tenants, sometimes called the parable of the vineyard, parable of the wicked tenants or the wicked leaders. I'll go ahead and read the text in its entirety. It starts in verse 33 and then ends in verse 46, and then I'll ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that Jesus has preached so clearly a parable that shows us the kingdom of God. That shows us that the kingdom is here with your people. We pray that you would give us wisdom in your word. That you would show us what it means to put our faith into Christ and to receive him. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? If I were to hand out maps to all of the young kids in our congregation here tonight and say, find the kingdom of God on this map, I'm curious what answers they might give. Of course, they wouldn't be able to find it, per se, on an earthly map. Because the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. Well, if it's not an earthly kingdom, how do you know where the kingdom is? Maybe I could put it a little bit more personal. How do you know that the kingdom is here in our midst? How do you know that you're in the kingdom? That your family or your church are part of this glorious kingdom that Jesus is speaking about? Well, this is the parable of the tenants or the vineyard. And it addresses questions like this. Where is the kingdom of God truly? And it's an important parable. 
It's one where Jesus describes himself as the foundation stone of the kingdom. He is the one that the whole kingdom rests squarely upon. I'll give you the answer to the question right up front, and then we'll see it in our text. Where is the kingdom? It's wherever the Son is received by faith and obeyed. It's wherever the Son is received by faith and in love. I've got three points for us. They're all kingdom-themed as Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. The first thing we see is a kingdom history, the history of the kingdom. The second thing we see is the kingdom tragedy. And the third thing we see is a kingdom transfer, a history, a tragedy, and a transfer. Let's go ahead and look first at a history of the kingdom. Look at me at verse 33. Jesus begins... uh, Uh, familiar enough. He says, hear another parable. He's been teaching on several parables outlining the nature of the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. It seems like an ordinary scene to us. It's as if Jesus is saying there is a wealthy businessman and he's purchasing real estate. This is ordinary language. There's a man who's building a vineyard. But we need to see that everyone that Jesus was talking to would have immediately clued in on what Jesus was really getting at. You see, a vineyard had a special religious significance in the Old Testament especially. The vineyard was the people of God. The vineyard was another description, an allegory of Israel. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, there is a famous section of Isaiah's prophecy called the Song of the Vineyard. And in that song, God is called my beloved. And Jesus' parable is alluding directly to that song and he's building onto it. So what happens in that song there in Isaiah 5? Well, my beloved or God builds a vineyard. And he spares no expense. We're told that he finds the best soil. He puts his vineyard on a choice hill. He clears it of stones and rocks. He puts a watchtower to protect his vineyard, to protect what he loves. He builds a wine vat. And then he waits, and he waits, and he waits a little bit more. And the text tells us that nothing comes. Nothing good. No good fruit comes from the vineyard, we're told. Instead, it's merely wild grapes. Isaiah tells us it's a fruit of bloodshed and violence and idolatry and rebellion. It's summarized right at the end of that text. Isaiah says, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So when Jesus says there was a master who built a vineyard, they are thinking of that text. And Jesus' parable follows a very similar pattern. There's one key addition I want you to notice in Jesus' version of this parable. Jesus focuses in, he lasers in on the religious leadership of the day. He's especially focusing on the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Levites. 
Other than this, it follows a very similar pattern. In this example, the vineyard is very well cared for. Once again, we see the master of the house. And what is he doing? He's putting a fence. He's putting a wine press. He's building a tower. In other words, he wants them to see that that God has put great energy and time and money into this investment. What is Jesus getting at? What are we supposed to take from all of that? Well, it's supposed to teach us about the grace that God has lavished onto Israel. He has spared no expense. He has poured forth his grace. He's given Israel and his people everything that they needed to be the people of God. He gave them everything they need to follow their calling, which is to be holy, which is to be a nation of priests. Well, what has he given them? Well, you might just ask, what has he not given them? We could think that he's given them his own word. He's given them the oracles of God. He's given them the priesthood and the temple and the sacrificial system, all of which pointed to the holiness of God and his grace. He gave them his covenants and his promises and all of his oaths. I like what Paul says in Romans 3. He says, what advantage has the Jew or what what value is circumcision much in every way? That's what you're supposed to see here. They had much value. They had much advantage. Much grace had been given to them. That's the picture. It's one of grace and patience and kindness. God has been faithful to his people. And the assumption is is that they would go on to bear fruit. That's the grand assumption. That's what God is looking for. Fruit in his vineyard. Look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now is the time. The season is ready. The fruit should be ripe. You should be seeing the point here very clearly. The point that Jesus is making is that the grace of God must lead to change in our life. God's grace is meant to lead to fruit. It's meant to change who we are. It's meant to soften our hearts. It's meant to be received by faith, which then goes on to bear fruit to glorify God. Does that describe you here tonight? Are you someone who has these many blessings of God? For example, do you have a knowledge of the word of God? Do you know the oracles of God? Do you know the stories of the gospel and the stories of God's character? Did you grow up in the church? Did you grow up in a family that pointed you to Jesus Christ? Well, I have to tell you, all of that is evidence of the grace of God, but it can't stop there. Those things have to affect us. They have to change us because that's how God works in his kingdom. He goes on. In the parable, the servants are sent to collect this fruit. And we might simply say that in this parable, the servants are the prophets of old. They're the messengers of God. They're God's mouthpieces, God's righteous uh, preachers of repentance. They're really there to warn the people of God against covenant unfaithfulness and to point out that if they continue in this path of idolatry, then they'll be breaking the covenant of God. But look at how they were treated. 
For example, uh, let your eyes glaze over verse 35 and 36 and see the way that the servants, that the prophets have been treated. They were beaten, they were killed, and they were stoned. And yet, God is patient. More servants are sent. I think after the first one, I, I wouldn't want to send another one, but God is patient. And what happens to them? Well, they suffer the same fate. And then, yet again, we see God's grace one more time. That he's patient, that he's long-suffering with his people. He gives them warning after warning after warning. He rebukes them many, many times up until a condemnation. What a joy to see that this is the character of our God. God is patient with you. God is patient with sinners. He does warn and he does rebuke them and he does hold away his anger. But I have to tell you that his patience is not eternal. That where the patience of God ends, his justice begins. And this means that we must not make the mistake of old, which is to abuse the grace of God. We might ask ourselves, are we continuing in sin, even though we've come to know the great grace of God? Are we relying on the fact that we know God is patient and therefore, well, I can continue in my sin because of it? Perhaps God is rebuking you through his word tonight. Perhaps God is pointing out hidden faults in your very own heart and telling you that he has given you his grace so that you might give those sins up. I urge you, hear the warning. Repent while there is grace. Well, this is the sad story, the history of the kingdom. It's one where God is constantly pouring forth mercy, where he's giving grace to each generation. But what do the people do? They're callous. And they do not repent. I think no one describes this story better than Jesus himself. I'll give you an example. In Matthew 23, 37, he says these heartbreaking words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you... We're not willing. That's the history of the kingdom. Now, let's go on to the second point, a kingdom tragedy. Here we see that a sad story just gets worse. Look at verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him. And threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, we might wonder to ourselves, what is the master thinking? He sent wave after wave after wave of prophets and servants. And they were all killed and brutally uh, stoned and sent away and mistreated. Why send the son? Well, he's perhaps assuming here in this allegory that you can abuse a servant, but... To abuse a son is something much greater. Certainly, they will honor the son. Now, what are the tenants thinking in this story? Well, when they see the son, they see inheritance. They immediately see the great prize. Kill the son. 
and we get everything that will one day come to him. Really, they want to keep the vineyard for themselves. They don't want to give the fruit up to God. They want to keep all of the treasures of this kingdom for themselves. That's really what Jesus is getting at here. He's indicting the leaders of God's people at this time. They're primarily at fault. It's the leaders who think that the kingdom of God belongs to them. They do not consider themselves stewards, really. They consider themselves lords and master over this vineyard. And therefore, when the son comes, they they want to kill him and take what belongs to him. And of course... Interestingly, Jesus is prophesying about himself. He knows what will happen to him. He knows that he's the true heir. And that he's come to receive his glory and his kingdom. And yet what's going to happen? His own will not receive him. They won't honor him. They will not believe in him. But instead, they will kill him. That's because they want the kingdom and not the king. They want all of the blessings of God, but they don't actually want God himself. They they perhaps want the benefits of being called the people of God, but they don't actually love God. And it's shown because they don't love his son. There's another warning for us here in this text. We are not rulers of this kingdom that we're in. We're not masters, we're not lords. At the very best, we're stewards, we're servants, we're citizens. We're at the bottom of the totem pole. We're not great, but we're humble. We're not in charge of the kingdom, but we're under authority. And perhaps most importantly, here in Jesus' kingdom, the citizens actually adore their king. They receive him with love. They receive him with praise and honor. This is the great mistake of the Pharisees. And when you reject Christ, you reject the whole kingdom. It's because Jesus himself is the vine. He himself is the vineyard. Remember John 15, 1, what does Jesus say? I am the true vine. If you reject the son, what do you get? Nothing. This is the tragedy of the kingdom. The Jewish people, under direction of wicked leaders, find their king and put him on a cross. And instead demand that the kingdom be theirs. It is a spiritual treason of the highest level. That's kingdom tragedy. And finally, we see a kingdom transfer. Here the parable is finished and... Jesus, being a a wonderful teacher, asks follow-up questions. What does he ask? Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the crowd gives an answer. And what do they say? Look at verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And of course... That's the right answer. Justice will be done. The master of the house will not let this go. In fact, literally what they say is that wretched men will come to a wretched death. In other words, the punishment fits 
the crime perfectly. And Jesus does not shy away from that at all. But he does go on to teach them further. Look at verse 42. He says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. We might think to ourselves, well, Jesus, why are you continuing on? Certainly you've made the point, but there's more he has to say. And he makes this point from Psalm 118. That's where he's quoting from. Let me just tell you briefly about Psalm 118. It's a festal psalm. It's a song of celebration. And it praises God, particularly for establishing Israel as his chosen place of dwelling. And Jesus quotes verses 22 through 23, which speak of a rejected stone. Well, what is the rejected stone in context in Psalm 118? The rejected stone is Israel. They are a people that are weak and small. And the nations look at Israel and they say, you are nothing. And you are powerless. And your God is powerless. And yet, even so, God takes this small and weak enslaved people and he chooses to build his kingdom through them. They're the stone. And so what is Jesus saying here in our text? He's saying something like this. I am the true stone. I am the true Israel of God. I'm the real vineyard of God. He's revealing God's plan all along. That he will now build his kingdom on his son. And the nation of Israel was a shadow of that truth. It was pointing to Jesus as the true reality. Israel was rejected and Christ will be rejected. But he will be the one that the kingdom is built upon. He goes on and he summarizes really his whole lesson here in verse 43. He says, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's very clear. The kingdom of God will be taken away. From who? From those who abuse the grace of the kingdom. Who do not respond to the grace of God with fruit and with love. And notice one thing here. It's not that he builds a second kingdom. It's not that he has one kingdom and he gives up on that kingdom. And that kingdom has failed and now God is restarting with a new kingdom. No, instead it's a kingdom transfer. He is taking the king kingdom from those who do not receive the king and he is giving it to those who do. To those who produce the kingdom fruits. Because after all, we've already seen that's what God is after. God is after and searching for a people who will bear fruit. Who will believe in his son who will receive his son and then go on to bear fruit from their faith. I could ask you one more time tonight. Do you bear the fruit of the kingdom? Has this grace become real in your life? Are you changed under the grace and the kingdom of God? Are you bearing kingdom fruit? That's what Jesus is wanting every person there to ask. That's how they'll know if the kingdom 
is in their midst. Well, how does this text end? The religious leaders have been rebuked. They've opposed the stone and now they've been crushed. That's the meaning of verse 44. They've opposed the stone and now the stone has fallen on them. The kingdom has been ripped from them. What do they do? I can tell you what they should do. They should fall at their knees and repent and weep and say, Jesus, give us the kingdom. We, we do believe in you. We want to follow you. But that's not what they do. Their response is to arrest him. They want to put him away. They want to shut him up. They despise him in every sense of the word. They hear the king saying, this is my kingdom. And they want to get rid of him as soon as possible. But what about you tonight? Are you convinced that Jesus is the king and that this is his kingdom? Are you willing to receive him? To follow him by faith? Are you willing to receive him and praise him and honor him as the king of this kingdom? We started by asking very simply, where is the kingdom of God? And I'll give that answer one more time in closing. The kingdom is wherever the people of God receive their king. And receive him with joy and with shouts of acclamation and with praise and with the fruit of love. Let's pray.